It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Thanks, Dave. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We appreciate you downloading us and giving us a listen as we talk about week 10 of the 2015 Division Three football season. That's the podcast for November 9th, 2015. And, uh, well, you know we're getting close to the playoffs when uh, seniors are playing their final games. We're talking about pools and conference tiebreakers. Uh, when St. Thomas is putting trick plays on tape for postseason opponents, um, 14 teams have clinched their postseason bids out of the uh, 25 automatic bids, while a couple of teams missed their opportunities on Saturday. I was at one of those games, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Plus, we'll talk with contributor Kevin Neas about Thomas Moore's season and all the other big news from Saturday. Uh, should we start with the Salisbury-Wesley game, Keith? Yeah, I think we should. It was uh, probably the game that upended things the most in terms of what you expect. Uh, obviously, Wesley was... Uh, top five coming into the game um, had been pretty I don't know if dominant is the right word but in pretty had been pretty successful against their route 13 rival over the past uh, 10 years or so um, you know those games had traditionally been close and then they a couple of them started to get out of hand over the past few years there was one that was 43 five or something like that um, so you know as we wrote in triple take about this game and about the St. John's Bethel game, these are games that were historically really good games, and maybe it was a little bit of wish thinking to think they'd be great games again this season. And then, uh, what do you know, Salisbury coming off that uh, really shocking 51-39 loss in Week 9 to Christopher Newport, comes back, upsets Wesley, and this now puts Wesley, Mary Harden-Baylor, and... Wisconsin Whitewater potentially in the pool C three of the most dominant teams over the past decade or so none of them will be able to lock up an automatic bid yeah not to mention uh, not to mention St. John's I mean if you look at uh, some of the teams that are in pool C and we'll do a little bit more of a deep dive in a couple of minutes um, that's a that's a uh, a pretty impressive group of uh, teams the teams that have been uh, you know some of the dominant forces in division three football over the uh, the time that we've been uh, doing this website and uh, certainly in the time we've been doing this podcast um yeah it seemed like uh it seemed like the christopher newport game may be a bit of a wake-up call for salisbury you know salisbury was not really in the playoff picture basically except for the fact that they still had the ability to um you know to to control their own destiny because they played because uh, they had yet to play wesley um, and now if they go ahead and uh, win at Frostburg State on Saturday, that Salisbury will actually uh, clinch the automatic bid. And as you said, they'll put uh, Wesley in Pool C, which kind of disrupts a whole lot of things. Well, mostly it disrupts what, um, you know, four teams that were hoping to get a Pool C bid, like, say, like a Guilford or a Moravian, a team that's that doesn't have uh, huge wins on its resume, is not from a power conference, but has an opportunity to finish 9-1. and one. Those teams are the teams that really hate to see a Wesley dumped in the pool C, to see a Mary Harden Baylor um, potentially dumped in the pool C because we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the American Southwest. Uh, to see St. John's you know, have a, a great season and, and also be in pool C, those are the teams I think that really um, that that really uh, were affected most by the results. Really, of not just this past Saturday, but of the past two Saturdays. And by the way, if you're listening, we assume. That, uh, that you're a diehard D3 follower. But if you're sort of new to the process, we went over it uh, in full detail in last week's podcast. And you can always um, 
jump on the website, check out the frequently asked questions. There's a big section on the playoffs, how they work and how they put together. Pat and I, I think this week are, are going to speak in terms um, for people who are more familiar with the process. So hopefully you're listening. You know what Pool C is. That's the at-large bids. Yeah, basically the real the real quick thumbnail sketch. 25 automatic bids. That's almost every conference. It's every conference that has seven full Division three members. Um, there's one Pool B bid, which is set aside for the teams that aren't in those 25 conferences. And, and the Pool Cs are this, those six at-large teams. And they're the ones that cause the most discussion um, because, you know, we uh, you, you have to kind of compare teams across regions, teams that don't play each other uh, and don't even have any uh, any common opponents. So it's a little crazy. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that game has a huge impact. If, if, if Wesley does end up as an at-large candidate, Wesley could still win the automatic bid if Frostburg beats Salisbury, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later too. Um, let's see, another game that had uh, affected multiple potential playoff bids was that game in Marshall, Texas, where East Texas Baptist slopped its way past Hardin-Simmons. Uh, all of the tiebreakers, you know, all the great things that uh, that that 2003 race between those same three teams, uh, East Texas Baptist, Hardin Simmons, and Mary Hardin Baylor, all those things that came down to, they're irrelevant in the American Southwest Conference because there's no automatic bid for that conference this year. So the NCAA uh, committee will take whichever team it wants. Um, and at the moment, I would think it would still be Hardin Simmons unless East Texas Baptist also wins at Mary Hardin Baylor next week. Yeah, we we could get into this uh, a little deeper into the podcast because it it weaves in with one of my other categories. But I think that's that's a really interesting discussion if East Texas Baptist does beat Mary Harden Baylor, because then you have uh, a situation where teams that have have beaten teams that they've lost to. It's it's not an exact triangle because you also there's there's Texas Lutheran in that mix too. But I think it would be a, a very interesting discussion and. There's one Pool B bid guaranteed, so one of these teams is going to go because the other the other Pool B um, conference th- doesn't have a candidate. But I think it's it's very likely if Harden Simmons and Mary Harden Baylor win that that both of them go. And so there, though again, those teams that I talked about earlier, uh, they 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 want to be rooting for East Texas Baptist on on saturday to knock mary harden baylor out of the picture uh yeah that's true i mean an east texas baptist win on saturday would knock mary harden baylor completely out of the picture it might not be enough to put etbu in although it might the uh the reason why i think uh, right now east texas baptist is not as high on the uh as high on the playoff uh level as everybody else is because they lost to texas lutheran which uh keith mentioned of course that's another fairly common opponent uh, even though they're in the uh, they're in the other conference, the uh, SCAC rather than the ASC, um, because Harden Simmons beat them, because Mary Harden Baylor beat them, um, I, I think that's where I, uh, East Texas Baptist will be a little bit uh, further behind when the regional rankings come out this week. But you know, East Texas Baptist, as much as anybody does in Pool B, might still control its own destiny if having already beaten. Uh, uh, Harden Simmons, if they went ahead and beat Mary Harden Baylor, that would be a significant uh, change and a, a pretty quick turnaround in fortunes. Uh, Keith, we didn't really even uh, talk a whole lot about uh, ETBU's playoff hopes last week because you know they uh, they lost to McMurray, um, you know they lost to Texas Lutheran, and there was uh, you know that put them really far down. Yeah, well, you considered them a team that was pretty good, was having a good year, was on a little bit of an upswing, but wasn't quite in the Harden-Simmons 
Mary Harden Baylor stratosphere. And and in the mud on Saturday, they proved us wrong, or at least uh, they they woke us up to the point where now we have to start paying attention to uh, to their playoff chances. And I think their two losses are interesting because it's Texas Lutheran because it's uh, McMurray way back in week one. How much credence do you give to to a loss that happened way back in week one versus they would have two big wins again if they beat Mary Harden Baylor uh, in week 11 coming off a win against Harden Simmons in week 10 they would have two huge wins and then it goes back to that argument you know are you worried about who they lost to who they beat start comparing those strength to schedule numbers it gets really interesting and and we would spend a lot of time on next week's podcast I'm sure dissecting that I don't even know yeah when do we uh, when do we get together to record next week's podcast it's going to be a really late night on Sunday because uh, selection Sunday is next Sunday 6 p.m. Eastern time is the NCAA.com live stream we will have all of that information for you we'll have a link to get you to it we'll have it on our page etc etc we're hopeful that there will be a d3football.com analyst on that selection call they've done that uh, at ncaa.com over the last uh, the spring season and the winter season last year um, so we're hopeful that uh, somebody will be on that but uh, you know more details on that as time comes uh, that will be the first announcement of the brackets if you haven't been in a bracket in about a decade it's no longer on espn news to you um dot com the ocho or anything uh this is the only place to get it is uh is streamed online but uh that's all right um we'll try to do our best to make sure that all the uh, names are still pronounced correctly and nobody's from uh, mullenberg or algahaney so we should be all right there that joke never gets old <laughs> it hey, really doesn't while you're on the topic of shows it's what i'm curious about and you may not have an answer for it the yet. bracketology what? show yeah yeah uh so we did a we did a bracketology show last um last year it was pretty popular uh frank rossi who's the you know the the host of um in the huddle right it's not inside the huddle i always make that mistake the liberty league uh, east region talk show um has offered to host it again so we're kind of nailing down details on that but uh, look for that on saturday night um we had a i thought we had a pretty good audience for that last year people were interested to hear our mock committee debate the uh debate the the pairings and the possible uh you know the possible at large teams live on the air so i think we'll do that again and, uh, and once you really understand the process it, for people to follow along, you know, when you get to the point where there are four teams on the board and you guys are discussing the four teams, it really is actually interesting and, and kind of fun to discuss. And everything can be quantified um, for the most part. So it's not it's not made up. And, and once you follow it along, I think it's really it makes a lot more sense to the folks out there who don't necessarily understand how these committees do this. Yeah. And it is a uh, and it is a, a, a long and complicated process for them. And we uh, do the best to try to emulate that, but still make it an interesting show. Um, let's see. Saturday, I was at Birmingham Southern College. The first 19 minutes of the game were played without any electricity in the stadium. Uh, other than in the Panthers offenses, they jumped out for, to a 14-0 lead on Barry before we were midway through the second quarter and then held on down the stretch to beat the Vikings 14-7, and that denied Barry the opportunity to clinch the SAA's automatic bid. Um, I talked with Barry coach Tony Koncheski after the game. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, it's disappointing, um, you know, it, but that's kind of been the story of our season that we've we've made every game close. Um, so we're not quite there yet, but we found a way to win uh, most of the games and just came up a little bit short today. 
Yeah, it's a program, obviously, just in its third season. Uh, typically, we see new programs, especially at the small college level, have that arc and peak of the f season four. You guys are, you know, ostensibly one can make the argument you guys are here a year early, but with an opportunity to still win the conference title. Yeah, our, uh, the, the, the beauty of our conference is there's so much parity in there. Um, you know, you can any team on any given Saturday can win or lose in our conference, and that's kind of bared itself out the, the first couple years of our league. Um, so we knew that we were going to have a tough one today, and we're proud of our guys. I mean, um, you know, I've been through this once before at LaGrange, and we kind of peaked year three. Um, so, um, yeah, hopefully we're, we're still on the rise, and hopefully we can figure out a way to, to get it done next week against a really good center team. Meanwhile, Birmingham Southern finished off its season by playing spoiler, or at least not allowing Barry to clinch on their home field, and finished the season at 5-5. Five and five. It's Panthers coach Eddie Garfinkel. Yeah, you know, our offense, uh, Barry's got a really, really good defense, and they really did some good things in the first half, and, and then um, so real proud of the way our offense came out and played. And the and, uh, big thing is they didn't do anything in the second half to, uh, to hurt us, and that's kind of what we've done in some games you know, with turnovers and that type of thing. So as long as we protected the football and, and we were able to do some things, uh, you know, it gave us a chance. Keith, Barry's still in control of the race in the SAA, but now they have to clinch it versus center. This past week was a much more winnable game for them. Yeah, and, and you know, part of the deal with, with clinching the conference is you have to beat all the good teams, all the teams in the conference, not just the good teams. You have to beat the best ones, and generally you have to beat all of them. And sometimes you get another chance, you lose a game in there. And so uh, this time uh, around, Barry's going to have to earn it. But center was the team last year that, that went 10-0. They're having another nice season, and, and it's going to be a tall task for them. Just to try to run through this particular tiebreaker, and we'll talk about more of the tiebreakers in some of the other conferences uh, coming up later in the show. But uh, So here, let's see. If Barry loses to center and Hendricks wins, um, Hendricks is playing Sewanee, uh, Hendricks will get the automatic bid. Uh, Barry would also win if there's a four-way tie, and that could happen between uh, Hendricks, center, and uh, Chicago, University of Chicago and Barry. Um, it's the three-way tie that we'd have to go to the find the tiebreakers for, um, and so we will contact the SAA office to find out what happens if Barry, Hendricks, and Center all tie uh, with one loss apiece. They would all have split with each other. So every conference has its own set of tiebreakers, um, some of which don't apply here in this conference. It's having an automatic bid for the first time. Uh, St. Lawrence also missed its chance on Saturday, but they're in a better situation than Barry, at least. Uh, they host Merchant Marine this weekend with a chance to wrap up the AQ out of the Liberty League. But, uh, you know, at the end of the, the way the end of that game came down, um, you know, Hobart comes away with the uh, last second victory and uh, St. Lawrence is uh, left waiting for another week. Well, and that has to burn a lot for the Saints because not only did they lose to two this Saturday, by two, to Hobart this Saturday, they lost by two to Hobart in week 10 of last year probably kept them helped keep them out of the playoffs certainly uh, this time around they, they have a chance to make up for that but after a while you play the you know you've been there two or three or four years you play the same teams every year you um, you start to dislike the teams that beat you all the time and that's kind of how rivalries are developed so St. Lawrence and Hobart probably not um, not a huge rivalry for years and years and years, but starting to be that way the past couple of years with these these games being really close. It's uh, the East region just kind of not quite fell apart, but the top three teams all lost. Uh, Wesley, of course, uh, Delaware Valley, which lost to Lyco, um, and uh, and St. Lawrence is just uh, you know it, it really makes the uh, 
the East region at large picture pretty easy, I guess, because uh, if Wesley might be the only one that's a, a, a legitimate Pool C at large candidate out of the East region now. Well, the, the other thing about that, too, is you want to be the, the first team, the first Pool C team on the board in the in the East region, because if you're stuck behind the, uh, a, a team with a rough resume and you don't even get to the board to be discussed while the other teams in the Midwest and West are being discussed, you know, you may not get to the board till the fifth or sixth round and uh, and may not have a chance to get in. So we mentioned there are six at large bids. I'm going to name off a handful of teams here. Uh, and you know you guys count along at home. So these were uh, the the possible slash uh, semi legitimate pool C candidates going into week eleven. Uh, Wesley, that's if Salisbury wins. If Salisbury loses to Frostburg, then there might not be any legitimate pool C candidates from the East Region at all. Um, in the North, you know we have to dig down pretty deep. Uh, we'll come back to them in a second. Um, in the South, uh, Mary Harden Baylor's already been talked about. Keith already mentioned Moravian and Guilford. Uh, those are one-loss teams in less strong conferences who might not fare as well nationally uh, when they get to the table. And then the West is uh, pretty stacked. You could take, uh, I think, pretty easily you could take three Pool C teams from the West um, in uh, Whitewater, St. John's, Platteville, even um, with two losses is a pretty decent possibility. Uh, Whitworth has to be on that list somewhere. Um, and you know, that's four teams that are all ahead of Wartburg, for example. Um, Wartburg is another one of those, which would be a one loss team in a not very strong conference. So let's circle back just to the North for a second, because, uh, if we're projecting at large teams, that means we're projecting, um, somebody, obviously let's, let's just entertain the moment, the possibility for a second. If John Carroll beats Mount Union, then Mount Union is a, is a, is a veritable lock in the, as an at-large team in Pool C. But, uh, by the way, that would complete the, the, every good team of the past decade getting knocked <laughs> into pools. I guess Linfield would still be a Pool A team, but, uh, Mount Union, no reason they should lose, but, uh, but it would just complete the circle. Right. And it could still happen. So I figured we had to at least give that some, uh, some lip service. Um, that's at least a possibility. And, uh, so, but if John Carroll loses, then that's loss number two for them. Uh, they wouldn't even be the best uh, two loss team, I think from the Ohio athletic conference because Ohio Northern beat John Carroll. So they'd probably be ahead of them. Is Olivet then the best at large team from the North, uh, or Illinois Wesleyan with two losses. Uh, neither of those are, um, are particularly, uh, strong candidates, uh, Illinois Wesleyan perhaps, but, um, you know, I, I think if I'm if I'm thinking correctly, they're going to be one and two against regionally ranked opponents because they beat Franklin. That might just stack up well on paper, but uh, I'm not sure how that looks necessarily nationally. And then Olivet, um, you know, will have uh, will have the loss to Albion and, and not a whole lot. That's a kind of resume that doesn't necessarily do very well. I actually think it might be might be one of those years where we don't have any at large teams out of the north whatsoever. Yeah, and and if you take away the the idea of thinking about this. Uh, regionally, which is sometimes hard to do because everything during the season is, is so regional. And just go over those teams you mentioned. You mentioned at least 10, Pat, uh, really quickly. Wesley, Olivet, Illinois Wesleyan, um, skipping John Carroll, Mary Harden, Baylor, Moravian, Guilford, Whitewater, St. John's, Platteville, Whitworth. Uh, and not even really getting to Ohio Northern and Wartburg. So that would be 12 uh, 13 if you count John Carroll. These are the teams that are in the mix for six spots. And as we've said a couple times already, you figure Whitewater, St. John's, Mary Harden-Baylor, and probably Wesley 
are are very good vets to get in, not just because of their name recognition, because but because they have each played and beaten uh, other good teams, teams that are likely to be region, regionally ranked, which is one of the playoff criteria. So um, it's going to be a very tough situation for these teams that that are potentially nine and one and uh, and at the back end of this thing. Yeah, Pool C is definitely going to be uncomfortable for the newcomers this year, so it'll be a very interesting uh, nearly 24 hours between the end of most games on Saturday and the unveiling of the bracket on a Sunday evening. Moving ahead to game balls, uh, I'm going to go off the beaten path right away, but I, I feel it's just too good a performance to wait on. I, w- I want to get it into the, the first uh, 20-some minutes of this uh, podcast. And that's uh, Carroll wide receiver Kenan, Kevin Jennings, who set, let's see, three school single-game records, three school season records, two Midwest Conference marks in the Pioneers' win at Beloit. All of these uh, records stem from his 16 catches, 320 yards, and five touchdowns in a 48-24 uh, to 24 win. So that led to a school record for a single game in all three of those categories. Uh, it was also the conference record for yards and touchdowns in a game. And Jennings set the school's season mark in each of those categories as well. He's, he's got 87 catches, 1,203 yards, and 17 receiving touchdowns going into the season finale. Um, and uh, back to those three conference records. If the name Jennings rings a bell, it might be because his older brother, Michael Jennings, held all of those conference marks when he played at Illinois uh, College in the previous decade. Uh, Michael Jennings still holds the receptions record with 19 in a game. And by the way, um, even older brother, Peter Jennings, he's the Pioneers offensive coordinator and actually the person who uh, tipped me off to this, which which makes sense. I mean, who's who would be the one person who would have all of that information in their head? I thought you were just going to say because a guy named Peter Jennings would have a good news tip for you. Oh, that makes yeah. weight. That would have been a much better, much better line. No, I was going to say either that or I'm really old and nobody out there listening even remembers who Peter Jennings is. Um, I got a game ball or, you know, I usually split my ball in half or order two imaginary game balls. Um, Kendall Roberson from East Texas Baptist. Not the first time we've mentioned him on the podcast this season, but he had 50 carries in a win, in the win over uh, Harden, Simmons, and Pat. While you were talking about Carroll, uh, I, I, w- I went to look that up just to make sure the 50 was right. Yeah. Even though I, I'd read that once already, I just want to make sure. Uh, he had 50 carries, and this is how you know it was it was a, um, a brutal day for him. He, uh, he only averaged 3.9 yards a carry, didn't have any runs longer than 12 yards, so he got his 193 yards and three touchdowns uh, by grinding it out, 50 carries, and obviously they needed to do it. If, you, if you're on the website this week and you see that picture in Ryan Tipp's snap judgment column, it'll give you more of an idea what kind of game it was. Uh, just played in the slop and obviously the kind of game where, where you, not only do you need your, 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 your big uh, workhorse to carry the ball a lot, but you need him to take care of the ball as well to not fumble it around and, and give it back to the, old, the other team. So Yeah, that would have uh, been 3.9 yards in a cloud of I'm not sure what. <laughs> um, so 50 carries, you know, need I say more? Uh, fine, I'll say more. Uh, Salisbury, usually they're known for the big rushing numbers. They actually allowed big numbers in their, uh, in their loss to Wesley, uh, in their win over Wesley, sorry. Um, they allowed 618 yards, but they came up with a way to finally get past the Wolverines, who lost two fumbles. They were sacked twice, and they had nine penalties, which is very traditional for Wesley. And they only held the ball for about 24 minutes in that game. And uh, so, so finally, 
Salisbury figures out how to beat Wesley. Finally, East Texas Baptist um, is back in the playoff picture. And those two results, more than anything else, threw the rest of the playoff picture into a jumble. And so that's uh, those are my game balls for this week. Uh, my team on the rise, and instead of on the rise in the top 25 at this point, let's talk about the rise uh, in the playoff picture. And definitely got to go back to Salisbury here. Uh, you know, the Seagulls were not even in the East Region rankings last week, and now the Seagulls are in the driver's seat in that new jack. Now, not a year where we can assume that Salisbury will just roll past their Maryland arch rival. Uh, and I'm not sure if anybody else changed the course of their destiny more on Saturday than Salisbury did with its win against Wesley and uh, a win against Frostburg State would give them the automatic bid. Yeah, my riser, uh, in keeping with the lack of variety, I'm going back to East Texas Baptist. Uh, they'd certainly be my top 25 riser um, because they presented a, a conundrum for a, for a voter. The Tigers beat Harden-Simmons on Saturday. Harden-Simmons has beaten Mary Harden-Baylor. Mary Harden-Baylor has beaten Texas Lutheran, which also has lost to Harden-Simmons, but has beaten East Texas Baptist. I'm sure that was all confusing. The difference is now we're taking East Texas Baptist seriously and finding a spot for them in the top 25. If they were to win at Mary Harden-Baylor in Week 11 this coming Saturday, it'd be an interesting decision for the playoff selection committee. Because there's no ASC automatic bid and only one spot guaranteed for Pool B, ETBU, UMHB, and HSU would be up for the same spot. And with wins, hypothetically, over both the Hardens, maybe the committee looks past the losses to McMurray and Texas Lutheran, even though neither of those were close. The more likely scenario is Mary Harden-Baylor beating the Tigers, then ending up in Pool C when Harden-Simmons gets the Pool B bid. Now, Keith, I, I can tell you're trying very hard to make the Hardens happen. I'm not sure that's going to happen for you. Yeah, it's just sometimes, you know, you can only say UMHB, Mary Harden-Baylor, Harden-Simmons, you know, you know, over and over so many times. I figure we'll change it up a little bit. I, I, I want to put together the flow chart that uh, describes the, the win-slash-loss chain that uh, that you went through to get there. And I appreciate the lack of variety. Um I'm not going to go much further here with a team that will take a fall, and I'm talking about Delaware Valley. Uh, the Aggies had control of their own destiny, and now they need to beat Widener and have Albright lose to Lebanon Valley in order to even get in the playoffs. Plus, in that scenario, DelVal is 8-2 and, and would not be in line for a favorable matchup even if they do get in, whereas previously they had a, 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 a pretty strong shot at getting a home game. Well, I promise we'll mention some uh, off-the-beaten-path different teams later in the podcast. But my Yay, team- Carroll. My team, that's true. That's true. You gave a game ball to one. Uh, my team that'll take a fall is someone we've talked about already, Illinois Wesleyan. This happens often in three conferences with strong teams, and it'll probably be the case for Wisconsin Platteville as well. Third best team in a power conference will get you a bowl game in the East, but in the Midwest, all it gets you is an early date for equipment turn in and reminiscing on what could have been. IWU can pick up its eighth win next week at North Park, but the back to back losses to North Central and Wheaton will burn. Against the Thunder, the Titans fell behind by 20, rallied to tie it at 27, and then were powerless to stop Wheaton from controlling the fourth quarter and grinding out a 40-27 to 27 win. It's a shame because as CCIW number three, uh, Illinois Wesleyan opened the season with a 10-point win over Franklin, a team that won its conference, a much weaker conference, and will be playoff bound. I tell you, though, um, yeah, they're, they're three in the standings, but probably in the regional rankings, I'm not sure where they fall. 
Um, you know, that's a, a good question because uh, I think the the committee just found uh, North Central at five and three last week to be unrankable. Uh, some committees uh, in other sports have adopted the 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 six sixty seven winning percentage as a floor. You know, you can't be you can't get in as an at large uh, if you're if you're not six sixty seven or better, which would mean they probably wouldn't uh, put you in regional rankings either. But it'll be interesting to see how that works out. And we're joined by Kevin Nias, the uh, former Thomas Moore quarterback. I, do we, can we still call you that at this point? Uh, or uh, Division Three uh, football uh, observer and watcher, top 25 voter, and, and all sorts of things. But uh, basically, uh, since you were at the Thomas Moore uh, Case Western Reserve game on Saturday, kind of wanted to get your take on it, uh, someone who was uh, in there and, uh, and had a, a first-person view on it and could uh, give us an idea of how these teams stack up, where you think these teams uh, stack nationally, but also, you know, just how about that game? That was a uh, that was a pretty good game, especially for you as a Thomas Moore guy. A really great game for the uh, for the Thomas Moore faithful. Um, it was back and forth, hard fought by both teams. Um, I don't think the uh, the game was bigger than uh, you know the moment wasn't bigger than them, and uh, you know they both played well in spurts, and uh, it was just two teams going at it. It was. Um, you know, shame really to see uh, one of them had to lose and, and be eliminated from playoff contention as a result. Um, the uh, And really what, what ended up happening, uh, Rob Kuda was, as advertised, he's a gamer, um, you know, um, and uh, he had Brian Herb at receiver uh, constantly making plays. And, and then Anthony Cagnetti was uh, running the ball really well. They gave... Uh, Thomas Moore's defense fits at certain points, but um, out of 13 possessions, the Thomas Moore defense played extremely well as far as Ben don't break. Um, they held um, they held Case Western to four field goals and uh, five turnovers um, out of those 13 possessions and, and only three touchdowns, and, and that turned out to be uh, the difference in the game, really, uh, were the interceptions. You know, uh, I watched some of the game the previous week uh, when uh, when uh, Case played Wash U. Uh, I thought Kuda looked pretty good there as well. I mean, he th- he threw a pick um, right before I uh, I switched off to another game, uh, which obviously uh, ended a, a long streak where he, uh, he had not thrown an interception. Uh, obviously, Thomas Moore got to him a couple times, uh, and you mentioned the five turnovers total. But I I thought Kuda's uh, was a uh, more than a solid quarterback, a guy who could be a, an award contender. What did you think? I thought so too. He was under pressure all day and um, was able to uh, slip out of trouble a lot of times and make plays down the field. Um, he was extremely accurate. Uh, in fact, it was a surprise when um, to to us observing when he didn't make a throw um, that was that was right where it needed to be, um, and and that's a tribute to to his accuracy. Um, and, and definitely Thomas Moore came after him a little bit. Um, and in fact, the, uh, the interception by, uh, Ian Gunn and at the end of the third quarter, uh, I, I think he just kind of lost sight of him and, and, um, couldn't really explain, um, the throw into the flat late, but, uh, you know, he did really well. Um, and, and he was under pressure all day. So obviously, you know, Case is a situation where their quarterback is set for a while. Uh, Thomas Moore, you know, it seems like their quarterback situation is up in the air from game to game, if not half to half. Um, I know Jensen Gebhardt uh, went the entire distance on Saturday, but uh, Brennan Kuntz has gotten a lot of playing time, and it seems like sometimes he's been more effective. What do you think of the quarterback situation right now for Thomas Moore? 
I, I think it's worked out pretty well for them. Um, I, I know Brandon Koontz is, is banged up right now, and um, the uh, off week's coming at a good time. Um, they've complemented each other well. Um, they do some similar things. Uh, Brennan's a little bit more athletic, but, but Jensen's a four-year starter. Um, he makes the throws. He was really tough on, on Saturday. Um, he didn't have – Brennan didn't dress, so – um, and so Jensen really got it out. He got hit a few times that, uh, we were wondering, um, you know, if he was okay. He's a, he's a tough kid. I know he's been nicked up this year and, um, you know, he's holding off a, um, you know, a sophomore that, uh, is the future at the position and, um, he's done well this year. So, um, going into the playoffs, we're going to have two, um, healthy quarterbacks for Thomas Moore. Um, that do similar things. They don't have to change the offense for them. And, um, you know, really it just speaks to the depth of the team, um, you know, the entire season, uh, not just at quarterback. Um, you know, C.T. Tarrant is their leading rusher, and he's been nicked up the last two games. And so they've had two freshmen, uh, Javier Pitts and um, Luke Zajac, step in and, and do really well for them. So, it's been kind of the next man up uh, philosophy. They're playing for, uh, you know, their fallen teammate Mitch Kramer, and um, everything's kind of, kind of looking good right now. The off week's coming at a good time when um, they can they can heal up some of these nicks. Uh, they're done with their regular season, and um, judging by the uh, the calamity going on throughout the rest of the country, um, it's good that they're done and, and unscathed at ten and zero. Uh, you mentioned Kramer, and of course, um, you know the the tragic loss of that young man uh, during training camp. How how much is that? Uh, you know, we we saw this with uh, with Linfield uh, last year at a crucial time as well. How much is this uh, team, this program, the community kind of rallying around that? Well, uh, every game you'll see people wearing the the number twelve on their shirts, um, even the fans. And I know uh, Mitch is on each player's minds. Um, there's been instances this year where his number 12 has come up. They scored 12 touchdowns against Hanover. Um, they've been ranked number 12 for most of the season. Um, so I know um, they point to things like that, and I know that they're they're playing for him. And, um, you know, they, they accomplished one of their goals for him that they promised him. Um, and, um, I know that they, uh, they are, aren't done and they're going to continue to play for their, their friend and fallen teammate. Keith, obviously a little tough to go through 10 weeks without a buy. Uh, sometimes you need that, uh, you need that extra time to kind of rest and heal up. But, uh, now for Thomas Moore, having gotten through the 10 games, having the buy going into the playoffs, they've uh, got a little bit of an opportunity here. Well, it's an opportunity to, to rest up, to sit back and, and watch, uh, what they or let let the other team sort out who's going to get in the playoffs along with them. You know, it's nice to know that you're in, but I almost think that when you're a team that's playing a, some of your best football, but also playing off emotion and riding that high, it's 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 great to stay in the routine each week to have a game to look forward to each week because you know we we watched this last week last week last year play out. Uh, at the end of the season with Linfield when they lost one of their teammates. We've seen it happen a few years back with Washington and Jefferson. We've seen it happen. Really, Patton, you and I have done this um, long enough to to see tragedy unfold on, on campus and watch the way it affects teams. And um, it's certainly never something that you want happen, and there's no way to predict 
um, how it will affect a team. But I think um, it, it just seems that teams, when they're going through that grieving process, it's it's good for them to be together as much as possible. And it's almost better to not even have the bye week because you're just you're always practicing, you're always working together, and then you have a game and kind of a common goal to work towards. I'm going to move off the beaten path, and we're really getting off the beaten path now because we have talked about the uh, same 10 to 12 teams quite a bit, but, you know, this is playoff season, and that's the way it goes. Um, But I'm going to take a game that's super under the radar, mostly because um, the box score undersells what actually happens. If you looked at the Curry-Endicott game, it said Endicott won 27-21 in overtime, which is, you know, pretty cool, but not overly interesting for a game between two teams who are out of the playoffs. Um, but it's actually a uh, it's actually a four-overtime game. Endicott got to overtime in part by blocking a field goal with 5-19 left in regulation, and the goals blocked another one in uh, one of the extra sessions en route to the win. Jake Pelletier caught a touchdown pass in the fourth extra session, and Tyler Kalitri broke up a pass in the end zone on the final play of the game. By the way, Keith, one of those games where the team that won the toss in overtime failed to choose to play defense first. Um, Ferrum did the same thing. Any, any reason you can think of to defy the conventional wisdom and take the ball first in overtime? Pat, the conventional wisdom on this is solid. You play defense first, so you know whether a field goal attempt is an option for you to win the game. The only reasons I can think of that you'd pref- is that you'd prefer to choose an end and take the wind, thereby letting the other team choose whether or not to, to have possession first. Either that or your offensive players are really hot and you just want to get them the ball right away. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, yeah, there's no benefit to that uh, except for the possible win scenario. The only person I know who was really hot was uh, Ferrum coach David Harper after his team took the ball uh, and they lost in that overtime session 31-28. Well, for me to go off the beaten path, let's go to Worcester, Mass. Uh, WPI and Rochester, they're locked in a back-and-forth game. And after WPI misses a 28-yard field goal try at the, uh, at the end of a 12-play drive, Rochester goes 16 plays. These, these two drives basically eat up the entire fourth quarter. So Rochester goes 16 plays, including a one-yard fourth-down conversion to keep the drive alive, and they tie the score with 90 seconds left. It took Rochester seven minutes to tie it at 28, and it took Alex Doman 17 seconds uh, to return the kick 99 yards to give WPI the lead back with a minute 13 left. And that wasn't the end of it. Rochester takes possession, converts another fourth and one, scores on a 34-yard touchdown pass with 27 seconds left. Then they decide to go for two. They come out. They show the formation, timeouts. They run a play. WPI gets pass interference, giving Rochester another shot from closer in. You know, you know they move it from the three to the one and a half. So this time, Rochester decides to run, and uh, Nick Propignan, his run was stopped. WPI celebrates after losing in nearly losing in one of the wild finishes in history. Of course, if you tuned into the the show that uh, Pat that you mentioned earlier, that Frank Rossi and James Baker, longtime friends of the podcast and the site, uh, the Liberty League show that those two produce, uh, they probably talked about this game in much more depth uh, than than here. But I had to acknowledge it because uh, because it sounded like such a great great finish, and it wasn't the only great finish on Saturday. This this was the one I picked as a highlight. But uh, Gustavus had one. Uh, Lycoming had a wild finish as well. And uh, those either, either of those would have qualified, but let's hit those in, uh, in lightning round. I have a, a funny Gustavus story to tell. Uh, that might be the first funny Gustavus story I've ever heard, so I'm looking forward to that. 
my most surprising result, I'm, I'm looking at Wisconsin Stout edging Stevens Point 34-31 on Saturday. Uh, um, I Actually, I don't even have any details about the game in here. I should mention uh, Stevens Point had a field goal attempt in the uh, closing seconds that fell short. Uh, but the win by the Blue Devils prevents a clean sweep of uh, by the top four teams in the conference of the bottom four. So otherwise, Oshkosh, Whitewater, Platteville, and Stevens Point have swept River Falls, Stout, Lacrosse, and Eau Claire. Uh, although River Falls still has its crack at uh, Stevens Point this week. Uh, that's my most surprising result, and I think I read on Twitter something about what uh, your most surprising result was. Yeah, I stuck with it. Uh, Case Western Reserve played well on Saturday, well enough to push Thomas Moore to the brink. And if not for a season-opening 31-30 loss to Chicago, Case would be a decent Pool C candidate. But Chicago got hammered on Saturday, 52-7, by Carnegie Mellon in a result that came totally out of nowhere. Sam Banger rushed for 207 yards as the Tartans went over 300 as a team, while Chicago's Chandler Carroll, someone who we've mentioned, Yep. Earlier in the season in this podcast for huge rushing day, he rushed for just 43 yards. And what's great about this when you step back a little bit is that the UAA football teams uh, or the UAA schools with football teams, the five of them spread over three conferences are more interesting or they were on Saturday uh, apart than they ever were as one. It's true. uh, Yeah. If you ever get Rochester back into the UAA and then find two more teams, you get... uh you know, convince uh, Emory or NYU or Brandeis to start football. Uh, you know what? Never mind. We don't have any more automatic bids to hand out. We've got uh, we have uh, too few at-large bids as it is already. Well, they're doing such a good job making where they've landed their their factors uh, in, in all their conferences now. So yeah, we've talked about uh, we've, we've have we talked about all of them now today. Or no, no wash you today, but we oh, definitely talked about them at, at well, some point over over the course of the season. <laughs> Yeah, they uh, but they play um, they uh, they play University of Chicago on Saturday, and that weighs into the SAA tiebreaker. Chicago has to win that game to make a four-way tie. If Barry loses to center and Hendricks beats Sewanee, hey, I had that. All right, all right, moving on. Stat of the week. Uh, my stat of the week this week is forty-seven twenty. That's the time of possession on Luther's side of the box score on Saturday in the Norse's thirty-one twenty-one win versus Loris. You know how I love a good triple option box score. Uh, Luther's four and five. They could clinch their second five hundred season in a row with win versus Simpson next week. Um, I don't believe that there's a uh, a record um, being tracked by the NCAA for time of possession in a game, at least not in Division three. Um, I know that there have been uh, there have been longer. Uh, longer ones. I remember, uh, obviously, uh, the one that you and I would reference most frequently, uh, Keith, is the uh, Augustana Mount Union playoff game, which I think was in 1999, in which um, uh, Augustana held the ball for about uh, 49 minutes and lost. Um, you know that uh, that those sorts of uh, those sorts of things have happened, but I'm not sure if it's tracked anywhere in that sense. I had actually forgotten about that, but it's kind of a weird feeling. Uh, when your team hardly has the ball, unless of course uh, you know they hardly have the ball and win, and they win, like in that uh, Mount Union game you referenced. My stat of the week is more like a number of the week. The number is 20, and it connects D3's far reaches. Anna Maria in Massachusetts snapped a 20-game losing streak in dramatic fashion, scoring 19 points in the fourth quarter to win 24-20 at Gallaudet. Earlham and Lewis and Clark now have the longest active losing streaks at 22 games each. And uh, Misericordia snapped a 15-game skid by beating Wilkes on Saturday. And uh, we've seen a a good bunch of those long losing streaks bite the dust uh, this season. Meantime, Laverne 
put itself in position for its first playoff bid in 20 years. And if many of you listeners have no idea uh, what Laverne is or which conference the Leopards play in, that's understandable because they haven't made much news in the expanded playoff era, but they may well be the, uh, the Skyac champ and, you know, first round victim of Linfield. But uh, how about we let them enjoy it for a little bit? Yeah, exactly. Been a long time, long time for the Leopards. Uh, if, if if you see the picture on the front page of the team that's wearing green and orange, that's the uh, that's the Leopards. It's not a not a combination you see very often. Nope. All right, this is the time of the podcast where we either uh, pat ourselves on the back or smack our, uh, ourselves upside the head. We look back at our predictions from Friday morning in triple take. Uh, let's see. We'll start with the bad ones. My surprisingly close game, not surprisingly close. Uh, I know Keith, we've had these, this one is one of our standing categories since the beginning, but I'm wondering if there's any value to it anymore. Um, please take it away. I hate it. I hate this. This is my worst category. Uh, I, but I think you guys did all right with it once again. Um, none of us got the biggest top 25 team getting upset, but, uh, let's see. You picked Thomas Moore, who was not upset. Uh, Ryan didn't pick anybody, which is a pick I like, and I've used that in the past, but it did not come true this week. Uh, Ryan said Barry would help its playoff chances, but that most decidedly did not happen uh, as we've already covered. Yeah. Some people got upset with the, uh, with the pick, but actually, uh, I thought the 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 Case pick uh, held up well. There was a point in that game where uh, where Case Western uh, intercepted a pass in the end zone, and then on the first or second play coming out, they fumbled it back to Thomas Moore, and Thomas Moore scored the go ahead touchdown. But to uh, to Thomas Moore's credit, they uh, they played well in that game, and they didn't have C.T. Tarrant, their uh, their um, best running back. So uh, credit to them. And as far as uh, getting rid of surprisingly close, I think the you know I'm I'm always open to, to change on that. It, we kind of been doing it for several years, and it's always good to switch it up. But I think the original intent was to find a game that maybe wouldn't be an upset, but yeah. um, but would be more interesting than you might assume by looking at it on paper. It's just. It's just killing me. I'm, I'm agonizing over <laughs> it every week, and I'm just I'm not getting uh, I'm not hitting them at all. Well, although we do review who who had good picks and bad picks, we don't actually track the score uh, through the season. So if you didn't bring it up, nobody would know that you do terrible <laughs> at that category. It keeps me awake at night. Uh, maybe not. But uh, here at, uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning when we're doing the podcast, it's keeping me awake. Well, there were some good predictions in Triple Take, and that's the reason we do it, uh, so that when you read it on Friday mornings, you have a good sense of uh, – of what's out there when there are 100, 110 games on a given weekend, and we can boil them down for you and 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 tip you to some things that might happen. Where we gen- tend to be pretty proud of that. I think Ryan was the one who uh, really nailed nailed the game of the week pick. He picked the St. Lawrence Hobart game, which was decided with two seconds left and ended up being front page worthy. Uh, but there weren't any clunkers chosen either. Albright and Stevenson came down to the final possession where Albright took an intentional safety to avoid having to punt out of its own end zone and won 30 to 26. And Wheaton and Illinois Wesleyan, it, they didn't have a close final score, but it, the game definitely had uh, had impact. I guess I get a half a point for uh, for one of my two games being surprisingly close, but in uh, in in the the traditional Keith style, uh, the uh, yeah S- Salisbury surprisingly beat Wesley, you know because <laughs> it was su- very surprisingly close. Yes, I've I think I've done that like three or four times this year. So maybe I'm not doing any better than you at surprisingly close. But I f- I feel like if you you pick a game that um, 
ends up being so surprisingly close that the team you thought was going to keep it close ends up winning. That that yeah, you get like a half a point for that, as you said. Um, Ryan also picked Adrian beating Kalamazoo surprisingly closely. Uh, Pat, I thought you had some pretty good picks uh, further down in the triple take. You were the only one to pick a top 25 team to be upset as Gustavus Adolphus beat uh, number 23 Concordia Moorhead. You needed a miracle in the uh, in the final minute for that. I look forward you got, to you telling me about it. But you got that one right. And, uh, and we all picked teams outside of the playoff race to win, and they all did win. But, Pat, you picked one that was coming into the game on the 15-game losing streak in Misericordia, and they did indeed defeat Wilkes. Catching lightning in a bottle. I am so good at lightning rounds! All right, McMurray finishing its first season back as a member of Division Three at four and six overall, two and four versus D three teams, and two and three versus American Southwest Conference opponents. That includes that win which we mentioned earlier versus East Texas Baptist. Uh, McMurray was two and eight last year as a transitioning D two member. I remember they left Division Three to transition into Division Two, didn't get all the way there, unfully formed and uh, wandering their way back into Division Three. Uh, Bellhaven also in the clubhouse at two and eight overall, similar to their mark last year at two and nine in the NAIA. Pat, when you and I started doing um, D3 football, we were younger. I don't know if we were both singular, but um, it was definitely easy to travel to a game every week, sometimes more than one game a week. Not so easy anymore. I, I got a um, nine-year-old and a 10-year-old that's about to turn 11, so I was home on Saturday uh, flipping between games and uh, flipped to some good games. I spent a lot of time watching Wheaton, Illinois, Wesleyan, but I flipped away from some good games. So I ended up catching the, the end of the Gustavus uh, game, and uh, they get down, they, they score, and they, go, they decide they're going to go for two. And this is you know, 30 seconds left in the game, something like that. Uh, they went for two, simple call. They threw a fade uh, outside to one of the boys. I guess those guys are brothers. They, they're same year, Matt, same last name. Matt and Jeremy, yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, they they throw the fade to him. They miss it in um, in uh, the corner of the end zone. And I turned it off after that. I, I had to take my son to a, a sleepover party, and it was a, a, almost an hour drive. It used to be our neighbor. They moved far away, so I, I turned it off. And uh, you know, signed on uh, to when I started to do my vote to check the scores. And I was like, how did you know how did Gustavus win forty one thirty four? Well, it turns out uh, after I turned it off, they kicked the onside kick, scored in two plays, and, uh, and ended up winning that game. So like I guess I, I, I figured it was a, that was it. They went for two. They missed it. They were going to lose 34-33, and instead they win 41-34. Yeah, not the only game like that on Saturday either. What do you mean, with a, with a, a finish at the very end? Yeah, exactly. Well, they all finish at the end, but yes. <laughs> I mean, exciting, uh, 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 very end as in last play, last two plays. By the way, the the fade pass was uh, was from uh, Mitch Hendricks to Gabe Boyce, but it was Matt Boyce who had the huge day. He had eight catches for uh, 153 yards and a touchdown in that one, and uh, he's now the all-time uh, Gustavus receiving yards leader. I think the way you describe the Gustavus uh, game ending is uh, pretty much the same way the Lyco game ended against Delaware Valley. Uh, Lyco came down and uh, they scored uh, pretty late in the game and they missed on a two-point conversion as well. And I'll be honest with you, I was uh, following that game on live stats in the press box at Birmingham Southern. But, you know, usually when I'm on site at a game, I'm really trying to focus on paying attention to that game. Uh, so I uh, I kind of flipped away. I didn't 
I didn't pay attention to the onside kick. All of a sudden, um, I'm getting a message from Dave McHugh going, hey, by the way, Lyco's uh, uh, lining up to kick a game-winning field goal. I'm like, what the heck? Well, yeah, you, you, me, and Adam Turr, I think, all had the same uh, reaction because, you know, you glance at the – especially when there are you know, 30, 40, 60, yeah. I don't know how many games are ending at the same time, yeah. but there's the – there is a wave of games across the country, and and at this point in the year, so many of them have uh, conference title implications, playoff implications. That as soon as one gets out of hand, as Delval and uh, and Lycoming looked like it was at, when it was forty two twenty one, kind of just tune that one out and, and start focusing on one of these really good games. At, around the time when that started happening uh, was when Illinois Wesleyan came back to tie Wheaton. So it was 27 all. So I was watching that game intently. I know you're at a game. Other people are watching different games. Uh, I also was trying to watch Thomas Moore in case, cause that one was, uh, was on upset alert, uh, at the time. And, uh, just had no idea that, that Lyco even came back until we read about it later in the day. So, uh, <laughs> it's, you know, whether you're at a game and there's a whole bunch of other things going on that you can't follow, or you're even when you're home in front of the computer and you got d3football.com pulled up and you got, you know, live video links and live stats and audio. As far as the eye can see, you still can uh, can, can miss things. Um, let's see. I'm gonna take a trip back in time to 2012, and uh, once again this week, Buffalo State won a low-scoring battle on Lance Leipold's home field. With the Bengals hosting a conference title game in another sport in their stadium, uh, they found a welcome second home at the University of Buffalo and edged Ithaca there by the score of 7-3. to three. No word on whether Leipold took in any of the game, although he did tweet good luck to the teams. Um, Leipold's uh, Bulls at the University of Buffalo have won three in a row, by the way, and beat Kent on Thursday night to improve to 5-4. and four. One win in their final three games from being bowl eligible. And if you don't get my reference, uh, I'm sorry, I can't help you. we got to move on. It's a lightning round. <laughs> well, good. This one's going to actually be lightning. Uh, we usually talk about that one independent. We mention them every week in the podcast. Uh, how about the other two? They went head-to-head on Saturday, and that ensured that one of them would get a, a win, and those have been pretty scarce for the three independents this year. It was Alfred State who beat Maranatha Baptist 34-18 on Saturday. Uh, Olivet on Saturday picked up its eighth win, first time that they've gotten to that total since 1967. Uh, they have to beat Alma on Saturday and hope the at-large gods smile down on them. And if Alma beats Olivet, by the way, that throws the uh, MIAA tiebreakers all out the window. So uh, don't go there. Number one ranked Mount Union didn't score for the first 26 minutes of the game, and it looked like an old-style Mount Union Baldwin-Wallace game for much of the first half before the Purple Raiders pulled away in the fourth quarter and won 42-0. And uh, Mount Union has John Carroll coming up this week. Uh, I mentioned also, uh, but I'll mention it again, the Division Three Selection Show live stream goes live at 6 p.m. Eastern time next Sunday night. We'll have all the details for you here on D3Football.com as well as the bracket once it's announced. Bracketology on Saturday night. Uh, we are, as, uh, as we mentioned, planning to do a bracketology show in which we will uh, put our bracket together live on the air because we've done our own mock bracket uh, every year since 1999. So uh, we're not going to stop doing that. Um, Let's see, games coming up. Obviously, there's a handful of games in which, uh, five games in which the uh, automatic bid for a conference is decided with a head-to-head battle in the final week of the season, but only one of them in which it was a a predetermined uh, championship game and that will be in the Midwest Conference as uh, Monmouth travels to St. Norbert. 
uh, some of these other games, Keith, uh, the the situation that I think uh, a lot of people had hoped for when DePa joined the NCAC. Now the uh, the Monon Bell game will have conference title implications, automatic bid implications. As uh, Wabash at nine and zero and DePa at eight and one, they face off head to head this week for the automatic bid. Yeah, this is the the one of the great rivalries already in D three. So it's going to be a uh, you know whatever ten eleven thousand crowd tickets impossible to get. Um, it's already going to be a huge game. It's on TV, um, no matter what. And once you add the uh, the conference uh, title implications in there, I think it makes it that much bigger. DePaul for a long time was a member of the SCAC and uh, and moved into the North Coast. And to watch those two face off for the AQ, don't know how close of a game it actually will be. It's got to be closer than it's been in the past few years. That, so. It's true. It started to get out of hand. So just to have these these um, the AQ on the line, I think is a pretty big deal. Uh, it's at DePaw, so you're right about tickets being uh, scarce. They're uh, they're very limiting in the number of people that they allow to go to those games. That's why uh, Monon Bell game is not typically on that list of the top 30 attended games in Division Three because they've uh, yeah, it's uh, they've limited the number of seats there. It's a little easier to get a ticket at uh, when the game is at Wabash. Uh, let's see, the OAC, we've already mentioned, Mountain Union and John Carroll facing off head-to-head. Uh, Northern Athletics Collegiate Conference, Lakeland and Benedictine face off head-to-head this week. And in the, in the NEFC, Western New England and Salve Regina facing off for the automatic bid there as well. Yeah, Salve's been actually kind of hanging around for several weeks now, um, but for pretty much since the start of the season, this has been Western New England's conference to lose. And I think you'd say the same thing about the OAC for the past 23 <laughs> conference Years? races. Yeah. Um, although the John Carroll games uh, last season were very good with Mount Union. Both of them decided by uh, one score. Uh, but but this John Carroll team, you know, we've, we kind of, backed off them after about a couple of weeks so uh if they if they play well if they if john carroll plays as well against mount union uh this year as it did last year i'll certainly be surprised so those are the easy ones uh where head where the head-to-head battle will decide it uh let's get a couple of the complicated ones in the empire eight uh, pretty easy. Uh, Cortland can clinch with a, or, or not can clinch. Cortland would clinch with a win over Ithaca in the Cortica Jug game. If Cortland loses, then uh, the winner between Alfred and St. John Fisher on Saturday will clinch the automatic bid there. Yeah. Another one of the great rivalry games uh, in D3, the Cortica Jug game. And uh, after the way it ended last season, can't imagine uh, this could could top it, except Ithaca would love to get some some revenge for uh, for last season. Cortland has a chance to clinch; they can knock them out. And uh, how about St. John Fisher losing that season opener, forty eight nothing to Thomas Moore, uh, but still having a chance to uh, to win the conference and get in the postseason? Cortland has won the Cortica Jug five years in a row, I believe, maybe six, and uh, similarly uh, Wabash in the Monon Bell game. All right, MIAA. If Alma beats Olivet and Trine wins, Trine wins the automatic bid. If Olivet wins, then Albion gets the automatic qualifier no matter what Trine does. And Albion is in the clubhouse. Uh, they play a non-conference game against Aurora this week. Um, we talked about uh, the SCAC. I'm not um, – I didn't. where did I do with the MAC here? I got the MAC somewhere. Give me, uh, give me a couple of seconds to pull up the MAC. But, uh, Keith, why don't you uh, run through the other rivalry games that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, well, we talked about two of the really, really great rivalry games in D3. And uh, when we say great, obviously, it, it's usually both teams are competitive. The crowds 
are uh, bigger than homecoming, bigger than any game. Uh, and it's the game that alumni who kind of don't pay attention, they, they, they check in for this game. They have watch parties across the country, and that's the case when Williams hosts Amherst uh, in the, the Nescax big rivalry game. Uh, Nescax full of rivalries, but, uh, but that's the biggest one. Williams and Amherst, also the oldest rivalry in Division Three, oldest rivalry in any division except for uh, Division, what's, what's 1AA now, FCS? Yeah. Um, uh, so the you know and and Amherst has a undefeated season on the line, so Williams would love to spoil that. Uh, Randolph Macon hosts Hampton Sydney in the game. Franklin is at Hanover for the victory bell, and Claremont Mudscripts hosts Pomona Pitzer. But don't worry if you go to the wrong stadium; the other one is two and a half blocks down the street at the Consortium Colleges in Southern California. All right, and here's that Middle Atlantic Conference detail. So Albright is in with a win. If Albright loses and Delaware Valley wins, then Delaware Valley wins the automatic bid. But if Albright loses and Delaware Valley loses, then Albright gets the automatic qualifier. And Widener and Stevenson, who are in the uh, who are in the standings in the race, uh, are not in the race mathematically. Uh, and I know we're coming up on our hour here, but uh, Keith mentioned bowl games in the East Coast, and I just wanted to give a shout-out to the Centennial Conference and the Middle Atlantic Conference for breaking out of the ECAC and uh, hosting their own bowl games. Nobody, I don't understand why uh, the ECAC thought it was a good idea to send people from all across western Pennsylvania and uh, Maryland and West Virginia out to Connecticut, to New Britain, Connecticut, uh, for an overnight trip to play all of those ECAC bowl games at Central Connecticut State. That makes no sense whatsoever. makes much more sense for conferences to have their own individual bowl game kind of contracts set up, and maybe that's something that will spread outside, and maybe the uh, OAC and the NCAC could do that, or the, um, you know, the... Uh, Heartland and the MIAA could do, uh, could ha- do that for their runners-up. Um, hopefully that's something that uh, that continues because I think those would be cool for other kids to have that opportunity here in Division Three football. Yeah, just as far as bringing a crowd to have that game on campus. Somebody's campus, right? Not a D1 campus. Ah, with that bit of indignation, that was the Around the Nation podcast, number 141 for the week of November 9th, 2015. Thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. You want to know things about Division Three football, and hey, we want to tell you things. This is the week to learn things, so check back on the site multiple times a day. There's way too much going on. Don't forget to share and rate our podcast. Thanks for following Division Three football on D3Football.com.